Rachel Lodge created the installation Transfigurations Carbon Flow in 2021 for the Jack Straw New Media Gallery. It's a darkened space. There's an animation that starts to run on two walls of the space, and it's big, so the images are 10 or 12 feet across and correspondingly tall. Once they've watched the animation, it's sort of an adjunct to what you see on the, in the moving imagery on the walls. This is part of a body of work that I've been working on for five or six years now. So the imagery all relates to carbon and the flow of carbon through living things and then moves into kind of what we've been doing as humans on the planet with respect to fossil fuels and how what carbon is doing as a consequence of that. So you see actual atoms, especially at the beginning, and sort of patterns that they make, and that moves through different contexts, so forest context, oceans, and pump jacks, oil pumping rigs, and things of that nature. And it starts out with just some the notion of some drawing, um, drawing by hand on paper, representing some of the basics of some of this, so individual atoms and molecules, and a little bit about how photosynthesis works, which is kind of a recording of my process of trying to figure out how does all this stuff work actually I had these classes in high school and middle school but I don't remember any of it so I had to kind of work my way back through all that stuff so the visitors see some of that toward the beginning of the animation and there is also a small exhibit of objects on the other wall that the visitors can look at there's some pedestals against the wall so it's just a surface basically and I have a, a set of I want to say 12 jars there are actually 11 plus a little figure I call them my carbon jars. Um, they're basically just mason jars from the hardware store that are filled with different carbon-based materials, just stuff. I had gotten interested as I was digging into all this the science of kind of the question of, okay, people hear a lot about carbon dioxide, and we're concerned with that because it's a greenhouse gas. But like, okay, what is carbon actually? Does carbon exist as a pure element by itself? Well, yes, it does. It's graphite, which is pencil lead and also diamonds. But those have a very different structure. And then I kind of, I got interested in that and I just kind of went on from there. I was like, okay, can I get my hands on some of this stuff? And so that's where the jars came from. So the, in the gallery, what you see is just a kind of a curved row of these jars. It's very simple and they're labeled with the approximate amount of carbon as a percentage that is in the materials that you're looking at. So there's powdered graphite, there's fake diamonds from Joanne's Fabric and Crafts. There is some anthracite coal there's paraffin, which is actually a petroleum derivative, which I didn't know until I got involved in all this. It's the same stuff that people use to seal a jam jar. And there's sort of a series of other things that have also have carbon in them, dirt, oh, plankton itself. There's a jar of plankton. And that is actually that is actually a jar of spirulina from the health food store. Because I was puzzling over, where can I get my hands on some ocean plankton? And then I had this brainwave. Oh, and spirulina is actually arthrospira. Uh, platensis, I think. So it's this beautiful kind of spiral-shaped green algae. And so that little series ends with just jars of sticks, leaves, uh, dried fruit, dried apples, and a little human. And the point of all this is that there's percentage of carbon in all this stuff. The human being, so me or anybody listening, your, your body is about 18% carbon by weight. And where does that come from? It comes from what you ate because we're all eating carbohydrates. And it took me a really long time to sort of flash on what is a carbohydrate? Oh, carbon plus water. And so my whole 
thing has been this sort of fascination with the idea that, okay, photosynthesis plants or trees are drawing up water, H2O, from the ground and combining it with carbon dioxide, CO2, from the air that's happening in the leaves and they're making glucose, and then it goes on from there. So that's sort of the central mechanism of all this. It's kind of amazing to me, actually. <laughs> and then the, the jar series ends with a jar of what I just say is a jar of air. It's, it's an empty jar, but it has some tiny little drawings of CO2 molecules just suspended from threads. So the idea is this is jar, it's air, but it's got CO2 in it. And then there's a little handwritten version of what is called the Keeling curve, which climate folks all know about, which is just a measure. It's a direct measure from the top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii of how much CO2 is concentrated in the atmosphere and what's been happening to that concentration level since about 1960, I think, was when they first started. And it has gone up a whole bunch. When I was born in 1955, the level of parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was about 312 parts per million. We are now at 417. What I'm hoping people will get out of those jars, I'm not usually sure whether the jars themselves will tell that story. I've had a chance to just talk with people about it. Basically is to say, okay, if we know that when you burn plants, you send CO2 up into the atmosphere, um, and you know that when we grow plants, CO2 is taken from the atmosphere and turned into plants, then in general, what would be the solution in, you know, in really broad terms, what would be the solution to the climate situation is, well, stop, don't burn plants. Don't burn plants today and don't burn plants from 300 million years ago, which is what coal is. Right. And petroleum is, you know, basically little tiny plants from the bottom of the ocean. So just don't do that anymore. <laughs> Knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> I sat down with Rachel in the Jack Straw Studios to talk about how she conceived and created this installation, which uses sound, animation, and sculpture to explore the transmutation of carbon through natural, human, and industrial forms. That investigation of the theme of carbon that began five years ago, were there certain things in your world that you were beginning to see that that sparked that? Yeah, I'd been really interested in climate change and following it, although I, I wasn't working with it in any way. I, I had an, a different work life and another professional, unrelated professional stuff. And in my art stuff, I also wasn't dealing with it. But I was following it. I almost majored in physical geography when I was in college. And the first thing that you get is Earth-Sun relationships and then climate. At least that's how it was taught then, which was a long time ago now. So... And I was fascinated with that. The whole, that was all like a re revelation. It was like, wow, these earth systems are so amazing. And even then I was like, why don't they teach this to everyone in high school? Anyway, having had that background, I kind of became a weather buff and a climate buff. I was just very, very interested in that stuff. And I, I didn't do anything with it. But I kept in kind of following, you know, and I began to hear about the climate change issue, which was not too long after that. And we're talking decades ago now. I was keeping an eye on it, sort of. And then I guess what began to happen six, seven years ago, I started feeling like I really need to be addressing this in some way. My hair's on fire, basically. Uh, and I need to find some way that I'm able to speak to this or be useful in some fashion.
has your work as an artist felt like it's been tied into political and social change, or was that also something new for you? Well, I would say I'm still sort of an emerging artist, so I don't I don't have like a big track record of prior bodies of work to look at. But what I was doing previously, I suppose you could you probably could look at it and say there was a little bit of a political thread, but it was unrelated to this. I think the reason that I've landed on this now really is because of climate change specifically rather than some kind of longstanding interest in dealing with politics through art. What I will say about this body of work is that I think I've been intentional in looking for a way of speaking to this situation that actually avoids politics as much as possible. I've been deliberate about that. It's partly that I just got fascinated with the underlying science, kind of at the level of atoms and molecules. The more I learned about that, you know, it's really basic science. There's nothing fancy about it. But I just got fascinated with it. But it's also a way, for me, it was a way of engaging with our situation independent of what everybody says about it and where all the fights are. And I guess, you know, in trying to bring the work forward a little bit, it's been, you know, if this is useful to other folks, then good. <laughs> it's, and also as a way of sort of engaging people's Im imagination with it in a different way. I've had the chance to work with the public a little bit in other places like Pacific Science Center. I was an artist in residence there last year. And so I've had a chance to just talk with just folks. And climate change, is, it's both obviously been an incredibly politicized topic, an incredibly contested topic, but also a topic that even for folks who sort of have accepted, you know, yes, the science is real and this is happening, it's just a really difficult thing for people to sit with. It's just hard. And so it's hard for me. It's hard for me to sit with. And so a lot of my motivation in putting this work together was partly to find it. It's like, where's my place where I can sit with this? And this is sort of... I think I've mentioned in other settings sort of the notion of refuge. It's not easy right now to figure out where is there a refuge with respect to climate change and also, of course, some other things that we've had going on lately. But for me, it was just sort of the exploration of this kind of basic underlying phenomena is, is a place for me where I can feel sort of anchored a little bit. So, But then the other motivation is perhaps grief. So it's those two things together. I don't know if it's the other side of that coin, but it certainly feels like grief can be connected to that wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, grief at what we're losing, what we stand to lose. One of the things that is a constant challenge that is fruitful often, but also sometimes frustrating, is how to deal with the balance between my purely personal response to a situation or to something about this versus my desire or impulse also to help people understand it. So I've been feel like I've kind of been doing both, and the artist part of me sometimes is like, oh, "Can I just quit that part? <laughs> I'm tired of explaining this." <laughs> 
But it is also really interesting to think about, you know, okay, let me accept that challenge, though, and just keep going with it and see if I can continue. Is there some way that I can keep working with this creatively in a way where I, you know, I'm still kind of in some degree keeping this accessible to people who don't, aren't familiar, let's say, with some of the science. And the Jackstar opportunity has actually been really nice for me. I feel like I pushed this farther uh, here than I have before. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Can you say more about that, how doing the piece here shaped it? Yeah, it was really important for me to have the big walls. This is not the first animation I've done. So I've, I've done a two-channel animation before this that was at, up at the Museum of Northwest Art in an exhibit called Surge that was uh, a bunch of artists working with scientists. So having this as a solo opportunity has been really nice. And having that much room on the wall allowed me to think about what I was trying to do in a different way. Because part of my, the kind of the epiphany about the carbon dioxide thing is that we're in this process that's constantly happening where this carbon flow is happening all the time, whether you don't see it because carbon dioxide is invisible. But having those big walls was allowing me to do something kind of immersive where you're seeing this happening kind of right in your face and it's bigger than you are. So like the, the carbon atoms are you know way bigger than your head, let's say. And the krill that are going by are bigger than your head. <laughs> and the plankton's bigger than your head. So the scale thing actually is really interesting. The, the, that's something I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about, is that perceptually part of the reason people have had trouble, I think, understanding the whole climate thing is because it's around this thing, carbon dioxide, that you can't see to begin with. Its properties are such that it's invisible. And if you could see it, it would be tiny because it's made out of atoms stuck together. So that was kind of the beginning of all this. It's just how do you visualize this? If you're going to visualize the movement of these of this substance, which is incredibly important, but you can't see it. And then the scale question also is, what's the relationship between this little tiny thing, which is this molecule of stuff, and all these other things that happen that, that are on a much larger, more immediately visible scale? So in making, in visualizing the work, I'm putting things together in the same frame that are on radically different scales. So like that plankton is like what, not nano, I'm not good on those measures, nanometer. Anyway, it's really small. And the krill is like maybe two inches or an inch. So that's already like orders of magnitude in terms of the difference of scale. And then in other stuff that I have, you know, I just have like a picture of a whale coming along. Well, that is like many orders of magnitude in relation to the krill. But this carbon dioxide that becomes part of the plankton, that becomes part of the krill, that becomes part of the whale, I mean, that's just a food chain thing, but it's a, it's a carbon cycle thing. It's fundamental to life in the oceans, which means it's fundamental to life on the planet. The progression of scale there is just really interesting to me because I have to throw it together in the same frame if I want to show the relationship between those things. So the, the jack straw thing with the really big walls has just freed me up to play with that a little bit more. And I think I also just told myself that having this opportunity, I wanted to give myself a little bit more room creatively to maybe not stick quite so close. In, in the last animation that I did, the previous one, I actually animated the formation of glucose, which almost killed me. <laughs> I, I'm not a trained animator. I'm, I'm, my skills as an animator are minimal. Um, but I managed to get that done after a fashion. And this time when it came to it, I was like, oh, God, do I have to do I'm not going to do that again. I'm just not. It's just... <laughs> Actually, the way I did that was to show the formula in, in the pencil drawing at the beginning. Right. But then the little atoms with their nucleus, right, those mm -hmm. are animated and yeah. continue to sort of, you know, they spin around like like flowers or like fireflies. Mm -hmm. 
throughout the piece. So this is fascinating to me that you're like, I don't have a background as an animator and I don't have a background <laughs> as a sound person. And you have combined so many different elements into this piece. I mean, the way that you <laughs> have stretched yourself then by working in so many different mediums is astonishing. Oh, thank you. I, and I will say, I found this extremely difficult. I will just confess that. It, I was way at the limit of my ability to put this together. It, 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 this is not something that I just kind of sailed through. It was tough. I mean, you, you're working in animation and in sound and in pencil drawings and in storytelling as well and in sculpture. <laughs> And in found objects, and in in science itself, right, and and um, an educational process. But throughout the whole thing, there is this thread of wonder mm. that I think is so present. And then I owe Jack Straw for a lot of that audio. There's a sort of jungle bird audio that's from Jack Straw from, from your library. That would be the other real opportunity. You were asking about the opportunity for the space, and I was talking about scale, but also for sure with the audio, although I was not able to do as much as I might have wanted to uh, with that. I was feeling actually some pressure to try to do something sort of impressive. Well, because you guys, because you guys are Jack Straw, right? I was thinking, well, this whole opportunity is Jack Straw. These guys are sound people. I need to do something interesting or impressive with the sound. So I was sort of trying to do that. And at a certain point, I realized, you know what? You really have to attend to the relationship between the visual and the sound. And you'd want to be careful that you're not detracting from the visual experience by something that is distracting or preoccupying in the sound. So that was actually a learning experience. I ended up backing off of some of what I was thinking I wanted to do. I decided it was better to err on the side of too simple, not enough going on, mm -hmm. than too complex and too much and potentially kind of grabbing people's attention. But with the resources and with the help, you know, working with Aisha here in the studio and being able to record some of what's in there is some really short little guitar clips that I recorded and also kalimba. You mentioned that you consider yourself an emerging artist. So what was your pathway into art? Yeah. Um, well, like like probably almost everybody, I used to draw, draw a lot when I was a kid. And, and I think just the difference is only that I didn't really stop. Um, but I had a whole other work life for several decades. Actually, not in science and not in art. I was in public policy. I was working mostly with programs and policy stuff having to do with low-income kids and families. Uh, so I did that for a long time. But I was doing art on the side. I kind of dropped it for a while, and then I started again in my 30s. And that's just been important to me. I'd sort of continued with And I was exhibiting a little bit, but, you know, I've never had a gallery, for instance. Um, 
So I wasn't really doing it kind of professionally, whatever that may mean exactly. And then when I finally came to the climate thing, I was like, okay, I, I want to make this my focus. And then it's just been this process of trying to figure out what is what is that, what does the art do, thing do with that? What does that mean? If you had asked me to guess what your background was, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed public policy. But when you say that, it makes sense just in terms of your ability through your work to inform people in a way that is not didactic, but is really sort of an, um, is welcoming mm. um, and 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 such a wonderful and almost embrace of both the subject and the the recipients. Thank you. I appreciate that. It actually does. My way of working on this in, in my own mind does actually come as a straight line out of what I used to do. It's a straight line because just briefly, the last big thing that I worked on was low-income kids and families all up and down California who needed all kinds of support and help in the neighborhood using the school as a focal point for that. That was an initiative I was closely involved in from the outset. And that was all about how do you get people from all kinds of different backgrounds to be in the same conversation about something that appears to be really complicated. But I kind of found my way into what is the role of the visual in helping people to come together around an idea or to understand an idea. But yeah, there, I mean, there was, there was lots of occasion to think about how do you reach people? And especially how do you reach people with something that appears off-putting or intimidating? which is certainly the way the climate science has struck a lot of people. So I had had sort of a professional interest in how you think about that kind of communication that was very much part of what I brought to thinking about this whole thing. One thing that I'm aware of and that I appreciate is that every person, and this is true I think about any encounter with any kind of artwork, every person brings their own story or their own life experience or their own sensibility to whatever it is that they're encountering. And so the meaning is always going to be a little bit different for each person. I guess if, you know, if I have a hope about it, it would just be that people, that people find something that dovetails with their experience or something that they care about or something that they're interested in, in a way that they can take away. Yeah, there's that, that beautiful image at the end of the hands mm. that are that are sketched, mm -hmm. um, and then that the sound turns into that heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Right, so rather <laughs> rather than being struck over the head with, it's all doom, right? <laughs> what you're talking about, like, what is it that we care about? And that connection, mm -hmm. right? What do we hold? What's at the core of our heartbeat? Mm -hmm. What do we hold inside it? I think, I think you've nailed it. <laughs> Thank you for that reading of the heartbeat. That's, that's, that's very nice. <laughs> Yeah, I. the ending was interesting on this for me, too. For one thing, I decided I was going to let loose and let those atoms just do whatever they wanted to do and be whatever color they wanted to be and just kind of go crazy at the end. I, I just said, okay, there is no science behind this. I'm just going to let it happen because it's cool visually. I'm just going to let loose. Um, but you're in the forest fire before you get to that. And in the other work that I've done, I have felt some internal pressure which comes from kind of the way folks talk about stuff out there, partly in the climate world, give people some hope. And I have tried to do that in kind of an explicit way in some of the other sort of stuff where there's some kind of narrative to it that I've done. With this one, I kind of didn't. I, th I thought, you know, 
And the way I think about it is we don't know where this goes. I'm not going to, I'm actually not going to tell people it's going to be okay because we're going to do X and Y. So I stopped short of that with this one. And that actually feels better to me. It's like, we'll just have, we'll have the atoms and we'll have the hands and we'll do what we end up doing about this. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully people will bring themselves to it in a way that gives us hope. Rachel Lodge's installation, Transfiguration's Carbon Flow, was created through the Jack Straw New Media Gallery Residency Program. Podcast interviewer is Alyssa Keen. Produced by Levi Fuller and Joel Maddox. Engineer is Joel Maddox. Jack Straw Executive Director is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Artist Residency Programs are made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, Rainier Institute and Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. To learn more about our arts programs and hear more podcasts, visit us at jackstraw.org.